You are listening to an episode of Ask the Pastor. My name is Reverend Greg Capel, and I am the pastor of Trinity Bible Church in Glassboro, New Jersey. In this episode, we're going to answer the question, what is the unpardonable sin, and can it be committed today? In order to begin answering the question, we must define what the unpardonable sin is within the scriptural context in which it occurs. In the scriptural context, Jesus has just cast out a demon from a blind and dumb man. The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out the demon through the power of Beelzebub, another name for Satan, the ruler of the demons. Matthew 12:24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, is a deliberate distortion of the name Baal-zebul. Baal-zebul was the god of the Philistines, 2 Kings chapter 1. Baal-zebul was known as the Lord of the Flies. Historians believe that this deity communicated through the buzzing of a fly and protected its worshippers from the plagues associated with flies. The Israelites deliberately distorted the name to Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Dung, and then applied that name to Satan, which was a common practice among the nations of that era to associate the god of their enemy uh, with the devil or Satan. Coming back to the context, Jesus healed this man and performed all of his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, not Satan. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 14. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. To accuse Jesus of doing miracles through the power of Satan was to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy is speaking evil of someone for the purpose of wounding their reputation. Thus, when the religious leaders accused Jesus of healing in the power of Satan, they injured the reputation of the Holy Spirit by accusing him of being Satan. It is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit which is unpardonable or unforgivable. Matthew 12, 31-32 Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Mark 3, 28-30 Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, the term forgiven in those two passages means to remit or remove sin so that the one forgiven is no longer guilty of that sin or under the power of that sin. If one sins against the Holy Spirit by blaspheming him, he will remain guilty of sin and under its power forever. The phrase, not forgiven him in this age or in the age to come, Matthew 12, 32, and the phrase, never has forgiveness, Mark 3, 29, indicates that the person has completely, 
forfeited the possibility of being forgiven now or in the future. Now, two things need to be stated regarding what the unpardonable or unforgivable sin is not. First, the unpardonable sin is not merely any sin or blasphemy. It is a particular sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said that any sin or blasphemy can be forgiven. Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Mark 3, 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Only the sin against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Again, the unpardonable sin is not just any sin or blasphemy. Second, the unpardonable sin is not against Jesus. Jesus said that even a word or a blasphemy against the Son of Man can be forgiven. Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Notice that a denial or rejection of Jesus is not the unpardonable sin. Think about Paul. Paul was a blasphemer of Jesus, and yet he was saved and went on to become a minister of the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.13 Even though I, Paul, was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That said, if someone was to die in their unbelief, they would experience the second death, that is, eternal separation from God in hell and the lake and fire. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 1 John 5.12 He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Revelation 21.8 their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now let's take this a step further. A Christian cannot commit the unpardonable sin. I'll repeat that again. A Christian cannot commit the unpardonable sin. First, a believer is redeemed and forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus Christ bought us as sinners out of the marketplace of sin, and he paid the ransom price, which was his blood, which in turn released the repentant sinner from the bondage of sin. And therefore, secondly, believers are clear of all sin. 1 John 1.7 but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, Jesus' blood was not only the ransom price. It is the detergent which cleanses the repentant sinner from their sin. And the tense of that verb cleanses indicates that it is a continual, ongoing process. Third, a believer has eternal life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is a never-ending life. The present tense of the verb have 
indicates that as believers, we presently possess this never-ending life with no end in view. The subjunctive mood of the verb have means that the possession of this life is intentional. God has intentionally given to us as believers never-ending life from the moment we believed with no end in view. Therefore, we cannot commit the unpardonable sin because we can never forfeit this never-ending life that God has given. So let's recap. Christians cannot commit the unpardonable sin. First, because we've been redeemed and forgiven. Second, because we're clear of all sin. And third, because we have eternal life. Now, it is impossible for anyone, Christian or not, in this present age to commit the unpardonable sin. First, the only time someone committed the unpardonable sin was during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Second, those who committed it were witnesses of Jesus' power and then attributed that power to Satan. Since Jesus physically ascended into heaven and is not visibly performing miracles on earth, this sin cannot be committed today. Let's think about that. Again, the unpardonable sin was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The only time it occurred was during the earthly ministry of Jesus. So here's Jesus performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. The people who blasphemed the Holy Spirit were those who were eyewitnesses. They themselves saw the power of Jesus on display and attributed the power of the Holy Spirit Jesus was displaying to Satan. Therefore, if Jesus is no longer on planet Earth and performing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, then this unpardonable sin cannot be committed today. Now let's take this a step further. Many people confuse the unpardonable sin with what is called the sin unto death found in 1 John 5.16. 1 John 5.16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. Again, context is necessary in order to determine if the unpardonable sin and the sin unto death are the same or if they're different. So let's look at the context of 1 John. Following his statement regarding answered prayers, John admonished his readers to pray for the restoration of a believer who is sinning. Now, up to this point in 1 John 5, John has mentioned a lot of things about sin. 1 John 1, 8-9 If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, no believer is without sin. And when a believer does sin, they should be quick to repent. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
What this tells us is that no believer lives a life of ongoing sin. Again, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 tells us that we are going to sin, and if we sin, we have to repent of it, and we're forgiven. At the same time, one who is born of God, a believer, does not practice sin. In other words, they're not habitually, continuously involved in some ongoing sin. It's not that we never sin, but it's not the norm in our life. Now, according to 1 John 5.16, if a believer sees another believer struggling with a sin, he should immediately pray for that sinning believer. The tense of the verb, he shall ask, expresses an immediate, spontaneous reaction. You see a brother or sister in Christ in sin, your immediate reaction should be to pray for them. Now, to be honest, the typical reaction is, oh my, what are they doing? I've got to go tell somebody. When in reality, what our response should be is, oh my, I need to pray to God to help this person. Now, understand that praying does not negate the sinning that the believer is doing, nor does it negate the fact that the sinner at some point or the believer at some point, would need to be confronted or admonished, reproved, or even rebuked about their sin. But notice, before any confrontation, prayer must be offered. And it's only after such prayer that then we should confront the sinning believer. And the only limitation placed here by John on praying is if it is a sin unto death. Now, the wording does not imply that this is a strict limitation on praying. Basically, John's saying, if they're committing a sin unto death, then the prayer is not going to be efficacious. So the question now is, what is the sin that leads to death? Now, before answering that question, let's establish what type of death is in view. Now, in the context of 1 John, the term life refers to eternal life. 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Thus, it follows that the term death refers to spiritual death. That is, eternal separation from God in hell and later the lake of fire. Again, if life in the context refers to eternal life, then death has to refer to eternal or spiritual death. Now, there are several opinions regarding which sin leads to death. Let's think about these for a moment. One opinion is that the sin that leads to death, or the sin unto death, refers to those sins worthy of death in the theocratic kingdom. Now, the theocratic kingdom was the kingdom of God that he established between himself and the Jews uh, during the early days of the monarchy. Basically, the only theocratic kingdom was under the reigns of David and Solomon. And it is true that within the setting of a theocratic kingdom, many sins led to death, or in that context, the natural end of life. However, that interpretation or opinion would not fit the context of 1 John 5.16. Because John, nor his original readers were living under the theocratic kingdom. So they're not going to be thinking in terms of, oh, he's talking about the sins of death 
or the sins that lead to death in the theocratic kingdom. Another opinion is that the sin unto death refers to the Roman Catholic position of venial and mortal sins. Now, venial sins are violations of God's law, which do not cause one to lose their salvation. Mortal sins, however, are violations of God's law, which do result in the loss of salvation, i.e. spiritual death. Now, while it is true that Scripture does teach that sins differ in magnitude of punishment, it never speaks of sins resulting in a loss of salvation. Matthew 11, 22 and 24. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Luke 12, 47 to 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. For every one who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Again, there are different punishments for differing sins. But Scripture is very clear that all sin is a transgression against God and results in spiritual death. Ezekiel 18.20 The person who sins will die. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, this idea of, well, the sin unto death refers to those mortal sins uh, that are going to result in the loss of salvation really doesn't hold up. The reality is all sin is punishable by death. Another theory is that the sin unto death is apostasy or false teaching. Now, apostasy is a willing renunciation of one's faith or a rejection of Jesus as revealed in the Scripture. And Scripture is clear that an apostate or false teacher is already unsaved and marked for hell. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and have then fallen away, that is, apostatized, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, the fact that John previously referenced false teachers, or any Christ as he called them, certainly makes it possible that John has apostasy in view. 1 John 2.8 Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, many false teachers have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. However, John makes it clear that these were never part of those to whom he is writing. 1 John 2.19 They that is, these false teachers went out from us, but they were never really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, these false teachers are not part of the real Christian community. 
The context of 1 John 5.16 indicates that those who sin unto death are in our midst. Still, others have argued that John is speaking of the unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. However, as I've previously stated, that sin can only be committed with Jesus physically present and performing miracles. John's epistle was written some 60 years after the ascension of Jesus, and therefore it would be impossible for the unpardonable sin to be committed in those days, much less presently. So, in order to identify the sin unto death, we need to note two things from the context. First, a believer sees his brother. The term brother implies that the one who is sinning is a believer. Now, no true believer persists in sin or sins habitually. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So, we can sin as believers, but... If we're true believers, we will not be known for habitually sinning. Okay, so, we're identifying two things from the context here. First, a believer sees his brother. That implies the one sinning is a believer. Second, in the phrase, sin a sin, and for them that sin. Again, we're back in our context of uh, 1 John 5, uh, 16. Those two phrases, sin a sin, and for them that sin, the term sin there, hamartano, is a present tense verb indicating an ongoing state. In other words, John is showing that the sin is habitual or constant. If habitual sin is in view, then we must ask, is the brother a true believer or merely a professing believer? In other words, he professes eternal life, but does not possess eternal life. Now, contextually, John has dealt with those professing believers, back in 1 John 2, verse 9, who are in reality not believers. Also, John uses the present tense of the verb to describe the activities of these professing believers who are not true. Let's go through 1 John and see what he says. If we say, 1 John 1, 16, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So those who claim to be believers but aren't really believers are those who walk in darkness and lie. 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The second thing about professing believers, not only do they walk in darkness and lie, but they do not keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 9-11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So the third thing we see here about professing believers is that they hate other believers. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's the fourth thing 
about these professing believers. They love the world. And then our fifth one, 1 John 2, 22-23. Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So here's the big one. They profess to be believers, but they deny that Jesus is the Messiah. So somebody can claim to be a believer. They can profess they're saved. But if they're walking in darkness, if they're lying, if they're not keeping his commandments, if they're hating their fellow believers, if they're loving the world, and if they're denying that Jesus is the Messiah, then they're not really believers. They, do, they, not, they might profess Christ, but they do not possess Christ. So the issue at stake then in 1 John 5.16 is in determining who is a true believer and who is merely a professing believer. If a believer sees another believer sinning, he should pray for them, and if necessary, follow the scriptural commands for such situations. If they are a true believer, the Holy Spirit will act upon them and bring them to repentance. If a professing believer continues in sin, and there is no change, then at some point it must be determined that this one is truly an unbeliever. Thus it's impossible for one to profess to be a believer, yet continue in sin and in turn be marked by God as committing a sin unto spiritual death. Hebrews 10, 26-29 For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer a sacrifice remaining for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who tramples underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So, Kent, what is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is a sin against the Holy Spirit. It is accusing Jesus of performing miracles in the power of Satan. The unpardonable sin cannot be committed today because we would need Jesus present here on earth performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. As to the sin unto death, the sin unto death is not the unpardonable sin. It's uh, not mortal sins, it's not apostasy, it's not false teaching. The sin unto death are sins committed by professing believers, okay? Again, they profess Christ, they don't possess Christ. They claim to be believers, but they're habitually still in sin. You can pray all day long for that person, and that prayer is not going to be effective because they're not saved to begin with. Rather than praying for them to repent of the sin and stop doing the sin they're doing, we need to pray that they'd repent of their sins and come to salvation. So that's the difference. The sin unto death there has to do with people claiming to be believers but still living in ongoing sin. In fact, they've never really truly been saved. They're the people who are committing sin unto death. This has been an episode of Ask the Pastor. To listen to previous episodes, go to www.trinitybiblechurchglassboro.com forward slash 
Ask the Pastor. Thanks for listening.